This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. We're revisiting an old friend of the Media Week podcast today, Sarah Wilson. Welcome back for I'm guessing is the third, maybe the fourth time. Yeah, it's been, we've done it a few times. I'm sure we, we did one before podcasts were invented, sometime after the last ice age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember one we did with you um, was back in, I think you were, were you, did you live for a while on the far north coast of New South Wales? Yeah, yeah, that's in right. My, in the bush in a... A hut? I'm, yeah, I'm thinking a hut. But, it was an army fight in the forest. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I was a walking wellness wellness warrior cliche back then. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Of course, we first came across you. I think you were probably as the editor of Cosmo. Yeah. It's the first time Media Week spoke to you. Then, of course, during your your short but very successful time hosting MasterChef. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you've. Gee whiz, you've done a few things, haven't you, across the years? You, um... Yeah, well, I'm old, James. <laughs> it, enables, it enables a few things. <laughs> but, yes, yeah I've, I've, um, yeah, I've managed to sort of, yeah, work all around the sort of different media, media as it's evolved, really. Yeah. Um, and I've loved it and I, you know, I, I sort of don't see it as sort of, gosh, you've done this now. And it's like, well, it's just all been a natural evolution. I just use different media um, for different messaging, you know, and it's, um, I love it. I absolutely love it. Was there, was there ever a time when you just, was all too much and you just dropped out for a bit? And Yeah, there was, there was. Yeah. And it was during that time in the, the shed. Um, after I left Cosmo, I got very sick. So I went up there and, and it was compounded um, by probably just, I was really young. I was 29 when I was editor of Cosmo and I had never managed a team. I, you know, I was put in charge of, I think it was a $12 million business essentially at the age of 29 with no experience. So, um, and I was suddenly put into the, into the spotlight, you know, with my hair done and lots of kind of pink clothing strapped onto my frame. And it was, I'd come from very different, um, a very different background. I was a news limited journalist, you know, in Melbourne where we wore black and flat shoes. So, um, yeah, there was certainly a recalibration of, of, of me and what mattered. And I, I actually did, it's an interesting question to ask because I reference it in my next book a fair bit as quite a really interesting pivot point in terms of me deciding who I was, what I was going to stand for, and how I was going to live the rest of my life. And I, and I refer back to those commitments to myself and a commitment to truth and, and decent journalism um, and often. And I, and I refer to it to this day. Um, it's, it's a commitment I have to kind of regroup, refocus on regularly. Um, in terms of what I stand for and predominantly in and around the chase of the dollar, Um, you know, and that's what led me to give away pretty much 80% of my income. And I've been doing that now for three years. So all of the I Quit Sugar proceeds um, when I closed the business down, and, of course, I had that interlude for, gosh, it was in total eight years, but I um, gave everything to charity and I continue to give all proceeds from, from all those digital earnings, but also the 
I have an Ike Sugar Recommends tick on supermarket products. That was one of the things I created. So all of that money goes to charity. So that was one of the commitments I made to myself is to keep real about why I do things and to not get caught up in the consumer capitalism neoliberal model. Okay. Now you mentioned the book. That's um, This One Wild and Precious Life. Um, I think it's out on like the first week of September. Yeah, just the um, next one. Yeah, it, it's late August, so I think it hits bookstores book on the twenty fifth or twenty sixth. It always takes them a few days to unpack the boxes, so yeah. by about August thirty first, first of September. Okay, now these books are pretty rare at the moment, but I'm lucky enough to get my hands on one now. <laughs> would I be right in thinking you had a bit to do with the physical? Yes. Make up the book. I mean, it's a it's a it might sound a bit corny, but it's a thing of beauty. I mean, thank you. I find the cover beginning to end in four days. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't the greatest experience in the sense that I was, I was there was a cover that I was presented with um, that was going to be very compromising um, and, and compromising to the message of what I do and what I stand for. Um, and uh, so I had to pull something out of the proverbial <laughs> over a weekend and I literally sat up on Pinterest until 2 o'clock in the morning just looking for artists and creators that I could work with their stuff and I found this wonderful graphic uh, collage artist, a woman called Karen who lives in Adelaide, funnily enough, who did these wacky, surreal collages of lunar art with cactuses and, and everything and I was a bit delirious but I felt... This could work. And I emailed her. She got straight back to me in the morning and, um, you know, I got her to help me with the, the actual layering of the imagery. So they're mountains from my various hikes. So for anyone listening, I actually, uh, three, three years ago, I set off hiking around the world to find a path through the clusterfuck of the current world. So it's sensibly the climate crisis and I've been a climate activist most of my life um, since I was a kid. And so I've witnessed how the message just doesn't cut through. Um, but also I've worked with Black Lives Matters for probably three, three years, um, message not getting through. I've worked with a few Aboriginal groups, message not getting through. And I've been a very vocal campaigner against consumerism um, much of my life. I consume nothing new. I don't own a car, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I... Um, you know, I just felt that we had to find a way, a soul's journey, a philosophical journey that was backed by science that was different to the fragmentation, the us versus them uh, didactic model that we are entrapped in. Um, so I hike around the world and I use that to make my breakdown of the neoliberal model sexy to readers. <laughs> and I <laughs> that one, James, I follow in the footsteps of Nietzsche in Switzerland but along the way, I work out that at the same time, in exactly the same mountain range, Heidi, the fictional character played by Shelley Temple, but written in the late 1880s, at exactly the same time that Nietzsche was writing his seminal works, this book was situated in exactly the same mountain range. And there's a town called Heidedorf where his story unfolded. And, again, it's another anti-capitalist um, moral. So anyway, I pull apart the neoliberal system while hiking in the footsteps of Nietzsche and the yodeling Heidi. <laughs> 
So, you know, my, my, my job description, James, across all, you know, my time in media has been to make difficult subjects a bit sexy. Yeah. Okay. Ergo, ergo the co-interlude. And when I talk about the book, I guess I'm not just referring to the actual cover design, but, I mean, the, the feel of the hardbacks, it's a hardback, it's a, mm. it's a smaller size, but thing, clever things like the pages have nice margins on either side so people can write their notes in it. And I have my notes in there. That's what I was going to say, yeah. So you've also used that space for some of your notes. Yeah. Um, and it just, it really works. It just looks Thank good. Yeah. yeah, I design it as a book where it's a discussion point. So um, first we make The Beast Beautiful, which in some ways part one to that book, which was my, my journey to understand anxiety outside of the medical model um, without necessarily put you know disparaging the worth of medicine in this realm but basically going our understanding needs to be bigger we need to go back to the way that we used to think about some of these quirks of evolution um, as things of beauty um, but I set up that format and for anyone listening who's maybe read the book or seen it it has a moleskin feel I wanted it to have a notebook vibe so that you put it in your bag you take it with you you read a little bit on the bus or you might read a little bit down you know at your local cafe if you are able to leave the house at the moment and you can write your notes in it and people do use the book like that. I want people to do that and then pass it on to their friend and then they write their notes in it and there's this layering of a conversation. So when I designed this book, the cover needed to reflect the story. So you'll see that uh, there's the mountain ranges. They are the mountains I've hiked. So there's the main one is Cradle Mountain in Tasmania, and a friend of mine took that photo. Um, another one is in Switzerland. Another one is the, uh, Sierra Nevada, which was another range that I hiked. But it's this notion of the motif of the sun is hope because I felt that we need a radically hopeful um, path. So, but yes, the, the conversation was always the way I wanted to do it. I researched the book by conducting discussion groups around the country to hear where people's pain and despair was at because I knew it was there but I needed confirmation and, and ideas as to how it was manifesting and what was at the crux of it. And really what was at the crux of it is we felt disconnected and we felt that we weren't able to talk about the itchy stuff, the ugly, fearful, irky, cringeworthy, guilt-laden um, stuff that's going on. So we were talking in euphemisms, we were talking around it, and then we went shopping and scrolling to cope. So when I had these discussions, I went, all right, I also need to ensure that I continue this conversation. And so as part of the book, I'm also doing a tour with Live Nation early next year once the COVID restrictions lift and that kicks off in, in, uh, early, in early February. So that is going to be a mass discussion group so that we take the conversation further and further. So... That's how I design my books. I design it with an ultimate aim in mind that goes beyond the book. Right. Mm. Um, I, I want to ask you a few things. But I won't go back over old ground, but I'll go back as far as I quit sugar. Yeah. And, and it got quite a bit of publicity when you decided to close that down. I think a lot of people were just surprised, wow, if something so successful, um, you'd worked hard to build it up and you sort of walked away. Mm. Um, so you've already explained it's, it's still ongoing in part and yep. the, the proceeds you, you give away to charity. Who was the person who bought some of it? Tell us that, what happened to it. Yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting process. Once I decided that I was no longer going to try to sell it to a big media corporation and there was a few that, that 
you know, we'd been in discussions with for a year. Um, and I realised that I was going to have to compromise everything I stood for and those commitments I made in the army shed were going to be fully compromised. And so I went, all right, I'm going to do this differently. Um, why not just sell off the assets and give the money to charity for a fixed price, no tyre kicking, um, you know, a due diligence period of just a couple of weeks and full transparency. So I set up a charity um, trust and um, basically a couple of parties came forward and they had to pitch for it. And so Sam Wood, um, who was a former bachelor and he's got a very successful um, 28-day program and he has great principles and he totally got it. He and his business partner totally got it, bought the recipes, bought the content. And then when they saw what I was doing with the money, they then, and this is something that they don't talk about, bless them, but they gave me an extra $20,000 for the next three years for me to put to the charity projects that I work on. And they've stuck to that commitment and they're, you know, I just let them know what I'm working on. Are you happy for me to put that money towards this project? And, and it's worked for them. Um, so it, it, it was a very interesting arrangement. And then I think people were surprised, James, but I described this in this one wild and precious life. I actually used the anecdote because it was actually a big pivot point for me to go and doing this next journey for the book. Um, so I sort of described the, the process and what I went through with my accountants and, and so on. But media kind of wrote a few stories about how I'd failed or gone mad and all this kind of thing. But they literally bypassed the bit about me giving the money to charity. Mm. So it wasn't until some overseas outlets started talking about it that people here, it was almost like, you know that experiment they do where they go watch the blue team and how many times they pass the basketball on the court. And you do that and you don't see a gorilla walking across the, the basketball court. You know that psychological experiment they do? It was almost like that. They were so busy watching, well, where did she fail? Why would she do this? It was worth X amount of, you know, millions of dollars. Why would she do this? Um, that they missed the actual story, the point, the answer, you know. Yeah. And so nobody reported, and I think there was, you know, very salacious articles about how I'd failed and um, just how I'd failed. I think that was the end of the story, the, the full extent of the story. So it was an interesting, it was an interesting thing to witness um, in the media landscape, how because it didn't fit the mould of how these things go, then it couldn't even be discussed or acknowledged. But the irony, before anyone makes, thinks that I'm being some Pollyanna, is that I now make my money and I'm very, I've got a wage manifesto on my site. I, um, I make my money by doing public speaking to corporates. And the irony is, is that I get booked to talk about how to have a meaningful career without money and not valuing money to banks, to insurance companies, to superannuation companies. I've been approached by some of the biggest ins um, insurance and superannuation companies in the world to work with them and consult on various products and ways of communicating environmental programs that they're working on. It's, it is so ironic. And again, there's this kind of um, sort of dissonant um, thinking where they don't actually go, ah, oh, here's somebody who actually is against money and we're getting her to talk, you know, like it's, it's wonderful. It's one, I, I actually quite love it. Does Dan, it make them better corporate citizens, do you think? Say that again? Does it make them better corporate citizens? 
Well, I think that they can tick a little box that goes better corporate citizens by getting Sarah Wilson to come <laughs> in and talk about the uh, the problems of having to of the more 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 system, you know. So yes, if I if I tick that box for them in some small way, then wonderful. But I can say that every time I've gone into a room like that, it is a highly receptive and enthusiastic audience who really want to hear this messaging. And so it was really wonderful for me writing this next book because, as I say, I pull apart a lot of kind of destructive thinking that we've, we've just lulled ourselves into believing, messaging that doesn't actually go to the heart of what matters in life. And, um, and I'm speaking and doing these talks in kind of discordant environments made me realise how universal the despair is and how universal our yearning is for real connection. So, um, look, it's, 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 I've done very, very well out of the whole thing. I'm guessing you'd probably say a lot of mainstream media maybe helps fuel despair and maybe even causes some of it. Um, but is it hard for you to promote what you do without having them on board sometimes? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a really nice question. Um, look, I'm a realist. Um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist to add hashtag MSM to my various tweets and emits. Um, this is the system we work in. So a lot of people assume that I must be a socialist and I'm not that either. Um, I, I acknowledge we work in a system and as you know, James, I was trained as a news limited journalist, did my cadetship with them. I have very fond memories of, of working for News Corp and also working for ACP in those days. So um, this is the world we live in. So in many ways, I've made the decision throughout my career, you might as well join them in the sense that within mass reach and within the system, you can then start to get people on board and start to shift ideas and shift the dial in a meaningful way rather than in an adversarial way. Um, so that's sort of been my approach. And I think, um, yeah, I, I work with mainstream media. I've got lots of friends that still work in these realms. They're good, honest people um, and they're doing the best they can with, you know, diminishing funds. And um, I think there is still scope for good journalism. And if anything, you know, um, it's only going to be good journalism that can, can survive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and what is the alternative, you know? But... I love experimenting with different ways of doing things. I'm experimenting with different types of influences and different types of um, ways of communicating and getting messages across. But I'm grateful for my journalistic background and my journalistic contacts because I do fortunately have an ability to be able to see what is, you know, fake news and what's not and to be able to discern. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm certainly not willing to, to isolate myself from, from that system yet. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, now, throughout it, you write about some of your big hikes, is that right? Yeah. Uh, yep. Mixed in amongst all the other, I don't know, heavier stuff or, or, or deeper stuff. Uh, yeah, <laughs> keep people interested, yep. <laughs> um, and... I mean, at the moment, I think you're in New South Wales, aren't you, as well? Yeah, We yeah. can't, at the moment, travel outside of our own state, mm. let alone internationally. I mean, travel's always been a big part of your life. Yeah, it has been. Um, you know, 
I, I don't even see it as travel because for eight years I lived out of one backpack um, on the road. So um, after, after leaving Sydney to go up to that hut in the, in the forest in um, northern New South Wales, I then went on to live in Greece. I lived, I've lived in all kinds of places and um, didn't own any furniture. I lost everything actually financially at first because I was sick for a year. Um, and so I just gave everything away. I didn't really own that much and I just sort of lived out of what whistled down to one backpack that was carry-on. And so for those three years where I travelled, um, before I finally settled in Sydney, um, I lived out of one bag. So I had no furniture. I've, I'd never bought a white good in my life. Um, and so, yes, I am now very much living the opposite kind of life. But um, I get out hiking. I'm, I'm not in Victoria, and, and apologies to everybody who's down there who's got a five-kilometre radius of, of activity, but I can get out hiking. Um, and so... I would say every second weekend, if not every weekend, I jump on a train. I don't own a car. I just jump on a train and I, I literally look at Google Maps and I find little trails and I'll sort of calculate how long that will be and I'll turn it into an excursion. Sometimes I have to hitchhike and um, apologies if any children are listening to this or parents with children who don't want the bad influence, but um, I've hitchhiked all my life and I love it. Um, right. And so, yeah, I, I still manage to do it. And one of the things that I'm hoping the book will help people appreciate there's hikes everywhere name a capital city I've, I've done hikes within an hour of um of the city you know and all throughout australia and around the world i will find there are wonderful hikes and i post photos on instagram because um you haven't done it unless there's a post on instagram about it and um people are like where's that you know that's oh my god you're so lucky and i'm like it's an hour on the metro train north of Sydney. Mm. Like it cost me $2.50 on a Sunday to get there. This is not about fortune. Mm. Pack your kids up, get out there, you know, put a backpack on with some, some water and a couple of pieces of fruit and off you go, you know. So, um, and I think that's going to be the big challenge for, you know, businesses but also the tourism um, bodies is to promote um, being rendered choiceless and exploring close to home because there is so much out there. But one of the dilemmas I have is things like this book's caused me, it, I mean, it's a great physical, it, it's great to have it. Yeah. But, um, but I really want to live a digital life and not have so many possessions. Yeah. Those things keep clashing for me. Um, <laughs> give me some advice. What do I do? Oh, well, you could do what the people are doing in uh, San Francisco at the moment. And the irony, life is full of ironies at the moment, Jane. <laughs> Um, is that it's the very same people that have got us digitally addicted and distracted with all their devices and their algorithms that keep us, you know, going down purchasing rabbit holes on, on Facebook and so on, um, who are into this whole, it's kind of followed on from a stoicism revival. Um, they're all into stoicism over there, the daily stoic, um, sort of pandas to all their, their that, that sort of, you know, that guilt. I've got too many possessions, therefore I'm going to go very, very austere. But um, they are doing a, what are called dopamine fasting. So what they do is they actually set up their lives so that once a day, once a week and once a year, they have these fasts from technology and stimulation. Now, some of them go as far as not looking in another person's eye because apparently that's too stimulating and dopamine um, triggering. But essentially it's about, you know, having um, detoxes from your technology daily but also mm -hmm. weekly. So weekly for a day, 
observing a Sabbath, which is something I promote in the book. Um, we, daily it would be a matter of um, switching your phone off and there's apps that you can use called Freedom um, and various others that basically you can program and shut down the internet um, at certain blocks during the day. Some of them go as far as the code for turning back on your internet gets sent to a friend. So you've actually got to ring old school, your friend, to get the code to launch your internet again. And then, you know, Akka um, or Allah, Bill Gates, the, he has a think week once a year where he goes off into a cabin with no mobile or internet reception to actually just have no technology. So dopamine fasting is a really big one that you can do. The big tip I would say for not consuming, I don't think books are the problem. Books are wonderful things. Um, they should be kept and passed around friends and that kind of thing. They're not disposable uh, one-off items. But essentially, just don't go to the shops. That is a mantra I work to. I can go for, I've done stints where I go 13, 15 months without going to the shops apart from toilet paper and frozen peas from Woolworths, which is about the extent of what I go to the shops for. And um, just don't go to the shops because shopping begets shopping, mm. you know. You go there to buy a vegetable peeler and you come home with tea light candles and, and towels that were on sale that you don't need, you know. And then you have to go and go back next week to find storage solutions, you know, for these things. And then you declutter and you think you've been a minimalist because you're decluttering. Yeah. I pull apart all of those kind of uh, psychological devices that we've bought into, so to speak. Um, somewhere in the book, I think, maybe in the intro, you talk about you call yourself being in your middle years. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's actually, I think, in the last year, the, 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 the sort of the final words in the book, actually, okay. I'm middle years. Yeah, I'm, I'm 46 and um, there's a certain amount of, there's a certain amount of sadness and resignation and also deep-seated joy that comes with that. And the conclusion I come up with at the end of the book there are a bunch of big, big life moments that happened in those three years that were extremely traumatic and took me down to some very base places um, and I worked through it. So, yeah, I think it was a very melancholy point in the book that I refer to myself in my middle years. Right. The, um, and hopefully just the start of your middle years, the um, <laughs> asking for a friend. Um, yeah. <laughs> the... the do you, there's a lot of pressure on people these days to set up their lives to have stability, financial security, and people feel they can't really make lifestyle changes because of what's expected of them and the need to, you know, to yeah. look after themselves in older years, I guess, and something which has been shown up recently, society's done a really bad job of, of looking for older people, looking after older people in the community, which is probably even more of a reason not to make big lifestyle changes and to take risks. But um, how long will you keep, you know, changing things up and, and, and doing different things, going out for new experiences and maybe even starting life. again, you know? The rest is my life. Yeah. That's me. And it's not everyone. And, you know, I, I know that. I mean, I, um, James, you know, it's no big secret. I've got bipolar. So I have a certain quirk in my brain that will always see me going to the edge um, and pushing ideas and boundaries. So, yeah, it, my honest answer is the rest of my life I'll be doing this dance, you know, dance, a dance forward and uh, yearning and trying things and learning things um, because especially during this COVID experience and also, I mean, this is an existential crisis that we're struggling with the, with the climate situation and a whole bunch of other things that are playing out. And... 
Look, I think many people have had some COVID clarity. Um, it's it's brought us down in very close to what matters and what we think should matters, and I think should matter. And I think um, for me, um, yeah, I, I sort of feel that when everything is stripped back, what do we have? We have life on this planet, and we have each other. And so, I'll certainly not be um, I'll certainly not be placing my value on on nest eggs and and so on um, going forward. Yeah. I always have enough to basically look after myself and not be a liability to society. Um, that's what I, I calculate things so that I, I will be, I'll be set up. I'm fine. But I'll, you know, any excess money, I will continue to give it away. Something we've always loved about you and my old podcast colleague, Brendan Woody, would have done a couple of podcasts with, with the both of us back in the day that um, we've admired your you the way you use social media you you sort of chronicle things you use it a bit of a diary of a bit of a um as a note taker you share your thoughts on it as well um you comment about other media i just know just had a quick look on your twitter here you're um you seem to be one of many people who aren't happy at the moment the way news corps reporting what's happening that's going on in victoria yeah yeah fair yeah that's i think that's fair um well, I, I think the tweet that you're referring to, and I don't actually use Twitter a lot. Um, I tend to use Instagram um, probably a little bit more, but um, that was a rare moment where I went on there and shared that. But, yeah, I think, um, you know, I've always had a problem with the campaigns that um, News Limited um, launch. Um, however, that was a, a rare moment where their campaign against Daniel Andrews' um, handling of the COVID crisis um, and you know, it kind of backfired on them because they did a poll, you know, asking people. And I think it was 60-something percent were in support of Daniel Andrews' performance um, during the COVID crisis. Um, You know, what do you know? Um, Humans can see when somebody's doing their best and humans can actually read between the headlines, the salacious headlines, and see... And, look, News Limited should be holding politicians to account, absolutely. Um, However... Um, I think there's got to be more nuance and more understanding, compassion um, and allowance for the actual facts of the matter. Um, you know, not everything that's been happening. Daniel Andrews and his government have made some mistakes. However, this is all, you know, to use a very 2020 word, unprecedented. Um, you know, I don't think he's been malicious. I think he's done the best he can. And all in all, I think he's been a wonderful leader. I think I also wrote that I find his, to a friend, uh, I find his polar fleece sweater really comforting. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, oh, there he is again, looking like my, looking like my father and he's, even though he's, I think, probably my age, but the polar fleece, you know, nice right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're all in uncharted territory, aren't we, for sure? There's got to be more compassion and understanding. And I think, um, unfortunately, there is a divided world. And I don't know if you've picked up on this, James. The big thing for me that's happening in media at the moment is the conspiracy theorists. That wellness community that I was part of and fostered and feel partly responsible for creating, you know, a decade ago, um, I, I sort of feel responsible for the beast. Um, they are very, there's a huge wedge of them who are very much Trump supporters, who buy into the QAnon conspiracy theorists, who believe that Daniel Andrews shut down Melbourne and is storing, um, is kidnapping children and putting them in tunnels underneath Melbourne. Mm. Um, so these, 
this is also happening um, and the, this, is the, this is the crew that are very anti-mainstream media and they're tapping into all of that conspiracy stuff that Trump is also stoking. So I caught that. That's probably my biggest challenge at the moment and it's very new and I'm trying to get to the bottom of where it's coming from. A couple of quick things and uh, you might find this is a weird question but is, is, is um, Pete Evans vilified just because he's got some different ideas? I mean... No, oh, I think I think um, I think that he's vilified also because some of the ideas are dangerous and and unverified. Um, I think that some of the stuff he comes up with is valid, um, you know, and and it's valid that people be you know asking questions, and I don't think anyone should be torn down for that. But when you come out as an authority with very dodgy science, and you and you try to create a movement around that. One thing to be a Joe Bloggs, just going, I think this, and I'm wondering about this, but that's not what he's doing. He's very much using his power in media, his huge online audience, to push a certain agenda. Um, and there might be elements of truth to that agenda in some areas, but it's, it's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. Um, and uh, as you know, James, I've often been packaged up as, you know, as one of... As, as, as a similar kind of voice. That's why I asked, because a lot of people would maybe pigeonhole you into a similar... I've been pigeonholed all my life. I've been pigeonholed. I continue to be pigeonholed as a sort of, um, you know, put a blow dry on a, on a pretty dress and press play, um, sort of trumped up um, TV presenter who's got nothing of worth to say. So I still cop the fact that I'm not allowed to talk. I shouldn't be talking about politics. Go back to writing recipes. Well, when I was writing recipes, I was told I wasn't allowed to do that. So, you know, how dare you come out with this idea of, was it banning an entire food group? Um, so I suppose with my journalistic background, um, I've always tried to be well-researched and I've tried to take be care, all care and responsibility. Um, you know, I, I know the responsibility involved. Um, but it is a real challenge, James, to that point, that as a woman in your 40s, if you are talking, I'm still perceived as that Cosmo editor who wouldn't have anything further to say at a philosophical or spiritual or political level. And it's only when people start to talk with me or maybe by chance get me on a panel show that they go, ah. Oh, and I'll actually be told, oh, you, you're actually a bit smart. And I'm like, well, why does that have to be a surprise, you know? So, yes, I've, I've been lumped in and classified and, and so on all my life, but then I might ask what woman in media hasn't. So, yeah, sure. Mm. All right, look, we've, we've always known. We've always known that you're worth, Sarah. Look, my final question um, on Sarah Wilson's wild and precious life. Yeah. What would you like to do next? Are there, or do you know what might be next for you? Yeah. Um, interestingly, after sort of being on the road for so long, um, I mean, I will continue to adventure outwards, but it might be at a five kilometre radius, you know, going forward. Um, yeah, I, I've just become a full-time foster parent. So, yeah, um, and I, I chronicle my journey um, through miscarriages and a bunch of other things to do with motherhood in the book. It's a sort of a theme that goes throughout. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've come out the other end of it and somehow this little 
little uh, kid has landed in my life and I've been rendered choiceless and, and that's what I'm doing next. And this little, little um, person is, is going to be my sidekick going forward. So that'll happen in the next couple of weeks. We're in the process of trying to set her up in a school Oh, wow. um, here. She's been doing respite care with me for some time. Um, mm-hmm. I was a respite carer with Aboriginal kids for quite some time. Um, and, yeah, so that's probably my next big one wild adventure. Um, it'll be precious, no doubt. Um, and, yeah, there's a couple of new themes um, that I'll probably explore and I'll probably explore new publishing models. Um, okay. I might, oh, I've, got the, I've got the energy and the... The, the drive, I think I'll uh, start to explore some different publishing models that uh, benefit consumers and everybody, um, creatives, but, you know, creatives um, in a way that's far more sustainable and nurturing and kind way of doing things. So I think there's going to be a few people reinventing wheels going forward. Fantastic. Look, it's always great to talk to you, great to catch up with you, um, your new book, This Wild and Precious Life, is out September 1, published by Pam McMillan, but it's a, um, it's a lovely little hardback, which, you'll, um, which is um, great to hold. And there's just lots you can sort of delve in and out of it too. That's, um, yeah. If you want to just go on some of the uh, camping trips or get into some of the, the other stuff, it's, um, it's, it looks like it's going to be a good read. Thank you very much, James. I hope you get round to reading it um, and live vicariously through my, my <laughs> in the footsteps of Heidi. <laughs> yodel, yodel away. Thank you so much, Sarah. Bye-bye. Goodbye.